This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Jen Pollock-Michelle is a writer based in Toronto, Canada. She's the author of several books, including Surprised by Paradox and A Habit Called Faith, which is releasing this week. One of the reasons I think your writing resonates with me, certainly in this book, because it's so much a part of the frame of this book, but in your book on Paradox as well, there's a sense that you're writing about faith with a very clear sense of the background of kind of nagging doubt or a culture of, of doubt. That does feel right to me, even though I wouldn't say that doubt is kind of a fundamental aspect of my faith posture. I mean, I know not that I think that would be a wrong thing. Perhaps I would even put it this way. I think it's the human experience of faith that I'm really interested in giving voice to. I feel like we have these kind of expressions of faith that actually feel very inhuman. They feel sort of robotic. They feel very mechanical. (laughs) I was even just actually reading today this morning from the Garden of Gethsemane. It just happened to be, you know, the next sort of reading in my gospel reading. And I was thinking about Jesus. I was just so struck by Him being described as being in anguish and distressed and in grief. And that those words could be actually applied to the Son of God. And that feels to be a very human experience. And so, any kind of expression of faith that doesn't make room for what it feels like to be human, they don't feel compelling to me. They actually don't even feel like shoes that fit on my feet, you know? I can remember a church that we went to long ago where they kind of had that saying, and maybe you've heard it, Mike, God's Word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, has never felt very realistic, truthfully. And I mm-hmm. actually think that a lot of people, when they hear that kind of formulation, they think, there's not room for me here. Mm. And so, I try to give voice to the human experience of faith, which I think is actually very paradoxical. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him with everything. He sings from the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about faith and work I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, my guest is Jen Pollock-Michelle. We talk about faith and doubt, writing, vocation, her new book on exploring Christianity as a habit, and the place women writers occupy in Christian publishing. It's a great conversation, so stay with us. Let's trace your story a little more. What led you to faith when you were in in high school? I was raised in a Christian family. So, I mean, in some ways I had 
kind of a typical sort of kneel on beside the bed with my mom experience when I was in first grade. I mean, to me, it feels more earnest to say that I started following Christ at 16, but I don't know. These things are a mystery for sure. But I was raised in a family that took me and my brother to church. I mean, many times a week, we were very good Southern Baptist. <laughs> I was actually just writing something and admitting that I used to play the handbells. Like, I mean, I was even mm. at church for handbell choir. And, you know, my mom, I would say, had a very visible faith. I just remember growing up and seeing her reading the Bible, and I knew she was a prayer. I didn't necessarily see that as much for my dad, but there definitely was a Christian sort of grounding in our family, that this actually made a difference. It wasn't just going to church. It really was personal. But I kind of thought Christianity was really boring. You know, I sort of imagined that that I would come back to Christianity in my high school years, in my early high school years, 14, 15, early 16. I wasn't saying that I didn't believe in Jesus, but I was definitely saying, I'll come back to Him when I'm like 30 and driving a minivan because my life will be boring anyways <laughs> at that point. I mean, it really was just the lure of the world. It was just, I want to have fun with my friends and... I sort of want to do what I want to do, you know, and I was a very rebellious kid early in high school. I was constantly lying to my parents and I was in a very sexually intimate relationship with a boy for many years and partying with my friends and and I never really saw that as something counter to kind of Christian faith. I really would have called myself a Christian at the time. Mm. I had a Christian friend in my youth group. Incidentally, I went to a church that was not actually in the community where I went to high school. So, it was really easy to kind of lead a double life. You know, at church, I'm sort of this one person, and then at school, I'm, I'm someone else. But I did have someone in my youth group who was such a genuine Christ follower. Like, it actually made a difference in her life. She was a year older than me. And I remember sort of watching her and, and being a little bit in awe of that and thinking like, wow, like she really takes this stuff seriously and it actually makes a difference in her life. So, I was sort of watching her. I had a Sunday school teacher at the time, actually, too, who also had this incredibly sincere faith. And it's funny that at like 15, you can sniff out like hypocrisy, like you just have a nose for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I could tell that she was so sincerely following Jesus. And I also was a little bit admiring and in awe of that. And God was just working on me, I think, through the whole year. And then the summer before my junior year of high school, I, I ended up at church camp, like with my youth group. And truthfully, like I wasn't even planning on going. I worked at this dry cleaners with all of my non-Christian friends. It's just so funny to sort of tell the details of the story because you think like this just doesn't even make sense, except in God's providence. But mm -hmm. I was working at a dry cleaners with my friends and I happened to mention summer camp and they're like, you should really go. We'll cover all of your shifts. And so it was my mm -hmm. non-Christian friends who essentially sent me off to camp. And I... I just can only describe it as an encounter with the living Christ. There was no really sermon that I remember or like devotional. There was no moment like that. But I remember a moment by myself standing by the lake and just hearing Jesus speak to me. And funny mm. enough, I heard His voice as questions. Mm. What do you want? Where are you headed? And will you follow? And 
I just knew it was Jesus. I don't know. I mean, I was at summer camp, so I don't know. Maybe I was expecting to find him there. But I also knew that I really didn't want the life that I was living. You know, I'm so struck by how Scripture the theme of life in Scripture, you know, Moses in Deuteronomy, follow these commands and you'll live. And and then John, I mean, I've been in Deuteronomy and John for this book, obviously. And, you know, I've come to give you life, life abundantly. And I knew at 16 that I was not living life, like real life. There is such a hollowness to sin, truthfully. And um, yeah, I said yes to Jesus and it radically changed my life. How did that impact your, you know, your trajectory from there? Like I know you went on to study French and literature and all that. Was your faith driving any of that kind of desire in any way? I wish I had kind of a more coherent story where, you know, <laughs> but I, in some ways, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about a memoir project now, and I'm thinking, like, it actually is a work of revision. You know, I think mm. if I were to ever write my story, it'd be a work of revision, like a re-seeing and a wanting to maybe, like, what would I have done differently? But I unfortunately had very few categories for what it looked like to serve Jesus vocationally as a woman. I had a very strong sense of God's call on my life early on. I thought maybe I would go on to the mission field, truthfully. I mean, that was really the only category that I had at that time. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Like, you know, I wasn't going to be a pastor. I wasn't going to, you know, be a vocational minister necessarily, but I could go on the mission field. I remember actually that sort of dawning on me. I can remember the moment, like, oh, I could do that. Yeah, that that actually could make sense of my life. And in some ways, my studies of French were sort of about that. Not really. It wasn't like I'm getting a French degree so I can go to a French-speaking country, but a sense of, you know, having another language is just another opportunity to minister in a different culture and in a different country. I went to Wheaton and, you know, in some ways for someone who thought they were called to ministry, it would have made a lot more sense for me to get some sort of ministry degree. But I didn't, and I don't think it made sense to me. I didn't know what I would even do with that. So, I, I got a French degree. I taught high school French. I got a master's in literature while I was teaching because I also started teaching English at the time at, at a high school on Chicago's North Shore. And then I started having kids, and I was doing a lot of ministry in my neighborhood, just a lot of like evangelistic Bible studies, and I was doing a lot of lay teaching in my church. I was... I mean, to say it now, I was I was preaching probably at a at a mm. local homeless shelter. We were going once a month with a group of women, and I really thought, okay, I will go back for a ministry degree. I was interested in the biblical exegesis degree at Wheaton. I think it made a lot of sense of my. I mean, when I think about French and literature, you know, biblical exegesis is language and text. <laughs> and then a month later, I found out I was pregnant. And mm. I had three kids already. And then a month later from that, I found out I was pregnant with twins. And then I just said, well, that's the end of it for me. Like, <laughs> I'll never do anything again. <laughs> I'll have five kids <laughs> and all I will do is be a mother. Of course, that wasn't the end of Jen's story. The twins came and three and a half years passed in Chicago. Then their family moved to Toronto because of a work opportunity for her husband. There, the older kids started school and the twins started a preschool program. I had three mornings a week 
two hours to myself and Mm -hmm. I just felt called to use that time to write. I had been doing some devotional writing for Moody even prior to when the twins were born, but it was sort of like just this side project. I do one or two projects a year and Mm -hmm. I never really imagined doing anything beyond that. I never even really necessarily saw myself as a writer. Although again, to sort of look back, of course, there were all these sort of signposts that I just never paid attention to. But I Mm -hmm. remember when we moved to Toronto, I had turned in a project for Moody and I just got some great feedback from the editor. And it's interesting because you were asking about moments when God speaks to you. And it was one of those moments. Like she said, you know, she had some complimentary things to say and she passed along from the editorial team. And in my mind, I said, she's just being nice. She's a friend. (laughs) She's just being nice. And I wanted to sort of like discount the compliments, I guess, and the encouragement. And I very clearly felt that I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, when will you start believing some of the things that people say about you, you know, some of the gifts maybe that they identify in you. What will it take for you to believe that? And Mm. I just was like, oh, you know, why is that so hard? And Mm -hmm. then I started to sort of piece that together with, I do actually have a desire to write more of my own story and I had a little bit of time, and so it wasn't like I'm going to write a book. I'm, it was actually like, I'm going to just start a blog. I'm going to just you know, actually write for a real audience and sort of put myself out there, take some risk, be a little bit more vulnerable, and that's sort of how it started. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. It's hard for most people, at least those that aren't like narcissistic sociopaths, (laughs) to take compliments, right? And it's certainly hard, I think, for people who are doing creative work to hear those kind of things. Well, it reminds me, there's this thing Brene Brown has done in some of her uh, lectures that I love, where she says, she tells the audience to imagine a family 
getting ready for a trip to the beach. And so, like you imagine, mom's in the kitchen, she's making sandwiches, and dad's packing the cooler and all the chairs in the car, and the kids are putting on sunscreen and all this kind of stuff. So she kind of lays out the whole story, and then you imagine them all getting in the van, and then the van pulls out of the driveway and, and heads towards the highway. And she says, okay, everybody just, just shout out what comes to mind, what comes next. And invariably in the audience, people will shout out like, you know, one of the kids throws up or they all get run <laughs> over by a truck or, or something like that. There's some impending disaster. And she does it to just point out that, like, we're not primed for good news. We're not primed mm. for, like, encouragement or optimism. The hardest thing to imagine is not something terrible happening. It's, it's really hard to just imagine that they went and had a nice day at the beach. Like, nobody ever says that, you know? Mm. And so I think about that a lot. I mean, even with regard to kind of vocation stuff like this, for many of us, it's difficult to imagine that something that we love is actually something that, like, doors are actually going to be open, we're going to be affirmed in that stuff. Particularly, I think, for when it comes to creative work, which I think of your writing as creative work. And because there's just a... There's cultural obstacles, the way, you know, people kind of grin knowingly, like, oh, you want to be a writer, oh, you want to be an artist, or whatever, like, well, good luck with that. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine that that's going to be affirmed and, and that the doors are going to open. Mm-hmm. And it's curious, actually, to hear you talk about it as, you know, as a man, truthfully, because I've always wondered if some of the self-doubt was really rooted in being a woman. Like, if there was something particular about the feminine experience, especially within conservative forms of evangelicalism, where self-doubt is kind of the automatic posture that <laughs> you take. I mean, maybe you could say even self-doubt is the automatic posture you take as a Christian. But I think as a Christian woman in conservative theological traditions, it's valorized actually somewhat. And I read this really interesting book at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's kind of blowing my mind, and I want to really do more with it, because I think he's onto something. But Matt Jensen wrote a book called The Gravity of Sin. And it's kind of a, this whole exploration of, you know, pride as the original sin. You know, what did Augustine and Luther and Bart, you know, have to say about that? And is that really true? And what do we see in their work? But then he has this chapter about where he explores feminist theologians kind of rejection of that um, and a sense of acedia being perhaps more fundamental to a woman's posture, like a sin posture in the world. And I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> I'm not a theologian, but it seems to sort of name something that's really been true of my experience as a woman is that laying claim to any kind of giftedness was a form of pride. I always just assumed mm. that was a form of pride. Humility, the posture of humility, was to always say, well, no, 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 that's not really, I'm not really good at that. Or I would never sort of presume to step into that. And that's sort of been my reading for the pandemic year. I've been really mm. kind of digging into that and fascinated by the idea that we can sin by 
by our position of indifference in the world, by a kind of listlessness that can show up vocationally, where we're unwilling to kind of rouse ourselves to care about the things God's given us to steward and care about. So I'll just sort of add that because I think it could be helpful for women who listen, who may have particular experiences with self-doubt in terms of like male-female differences. You know, my experience with some of this stuff, you know, it always goes back to childhood, right? So yeah. uh, I got good grades and, you know, I was decent at math and science and all that kind of stuff. And so the messages that I got from school and family and everything else was, well, if you're good at those things, that's what you're supposed to do with your life, you know? Mm. And so if, you know, if in my head, you know, I wanted to be a, you know, a visual artist or a musician or things like that, whether it was implicit or explicit, like these messages were there that that's actually a waste of your time. And I don't know how much of that was culturally general or like specific to my situation and circumstances. But I will say, I mean, in pastoring, I worked with a lot of artists and musicians and, you know, that was generally, there, there was this general posture around creative people that they always felt like the other shoe was going to drop and eventually they were just going to have to go, you know, get a real job, right? Mm. Like, quote unquote, real job. And there's an interesting parallel here in, in terms of the conversation about faith. Like, when it comes to this creative stuff, there's something in us that's living with doubt and living with a feeling that, you know, is it worth our time? Is it worth our investment? I'm sure you feel this way as a writer when you're in the middle of a project. Well, I don't want to project that. I know I feel this way as a writer. <laughs> you can absolutely project it. <laughs> when I'm in the middle of a, of a writing project, if I'm writing five days a week, at least two days of the week, I finish, you know, a, a writing session and I'm just like, nobody's going to read this. Like, nobody cares mm. about it. You know what I mean? Like, I know. I was thinking about my dad. My dad designed airport runways and I don't think he ever worried about that, you know? Mm. He had his stresses, his job wasn't easy, but the purpose and validity and, and impact of his work was never in doubt because one way or another, airplanes are gonna be landing and taking off on that mm -hmm. thing, so. Oh, you know, you're channeling a moment I had, I think it was um, the fall, late fall of 2019, and I had a sales report, you know, from Surprised by Paradox. I don't, it's hard to even remember when that book came out, but whatever, it was a disappointing, like, sales report. And, you know, it's that moment you hold that in your hand and you think, what the heck am I doing? You know, I am not supporting our family by the revenues from my books, which is good because we would be not eating. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in some ways, I have the privilege of not having to support my family based on my books, but I would be lying to say that I'm, you know, writing simply for myself. I'm writing for people to read, you know, I'm writing because I, I guess I feel like I'm, trying to make sense of something that's been helpful to me and offering it to the world. And, you know, you offer it as a gift, but is it does sort of sometimes feel like, gosh, is anybody interested in this gift that I have to offer in the world? Mm. And I actually... I had this kind of moment of, you know, well, you know, maybe I should turn to something else. And I think this is really important for creatives. I think that I've had this very sort of malformed understanding of what goodness is. And I heard you talk to David Zoll about the Enneagram. So 
if we're going to talk Enneagram, like I'm an Enneagram one. So I see the world (laughs) through the lens of goodness. I must be good. I must offer good things in the world. And my malformed understanding of goodness is usually, it has to do with seeing goodness only as generosity, only as the giving away. And Mm. I think that is a form of goodness, but creatives know that there's a lot of things you actually have to protect to live a generative creative life. You have to actually protect time. You have to protect quiet. You give yourself away through your work, but if you were to give yourself away in all these other kinds of areas of your life, you'd never have anything left for your creative life. And it was almost like I had permission, I guess, and I seek that in the world. I know that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a right thing. I just know that about me. It's like I had permission to just say, you know what, being a writer is a good thing. And even the things that I have to hold back in order to do this work, that actually could be an expression of faithfulness. Jen's newest book is A Habit Called Faith. 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. It approaches the idea of faith for seekers, skeptics, and Christians looking to deepen their own experience with an invitation to make it a habit. It's a mix of guided scripture readings with Jen's reflections and the stories of Christians who found faith in a variety of ways. Years ago, I had read Kent Annan's book, Slow Kingdom Coming, and he has this like the teeniest, tiniest little citation there to um, a an idea from Pascal in the Pensee about habit kind of being a backdoor into faith. And that really stuck with me. I just have thought about how habit has been so important in my own spiritual life. And it's sort of by temperament, I'm a routinized kind of person. But I feel like habit, it's been like that, you know, you're the trapeze artist and it's the net. It catches you and it holds you, you know, in moments where you do feel maybe distant from God or life is challenging in a certain way, spiritual habits are sort of that, exactly what you said, that kind of infrastructure, that backbone, you know, that kind of hold you in faith. And so, I was really intrigued by Kent Annan's idea that for people who don't actually yet subscribe to being a Christ follower, you know, who don't, who don't actually say I have faith. Like he said, well, actually go through the motions of faith and find it (laughs) on the Mm. other side. And I felt that that sounded so hopeful because as I'm in conversation with non-Christians all the time, as I talk to those kinds of people, a lot of them sort of assume that faith was distributed at birth, you know, to certain people, you know, they stood in the right line. They got this like special capacity to like see through beyond the skies into the heavens and to, you know, know that God was real. And they didn't get that. And they sort of feel like they're, they will always be on the other side of that door that C.S. Lewis talks about. They don't really know how they'd ever get beyond that. Like, how would that door ever open to them? And the other thing, too, is that I think a lot of times we imagine that non-Christians are asking, the door is closed to them because they have all these intellectual arguments against Christianity. That's assuming that they've even given it two seconds worth of thought, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of people in Toronto, they don't even care enough to even, even be asking those questions. It's like a conversation that I had with a neighbor actually in writing this book. I wanted to say to my unbelieving 
aging friends, would you ever do something like this? Would you ever take somebody up on the invitation to read the Bible for 40 days? And, you know, as I was talking to my neighbor across the street, she actually grew up in the former Soviet Union. So she grew up as a communist. Like, she's like, we had our religion. It was Stalin. It was Lenin. You know, we had our sacred text. Like, I just don't even have any categories for faith apart from that, obviously. And, you know, and so I was talking to her about the book and she said, her question, I think, was incredibly incisive. She said, what do I need faith for? I have a good life. I have, you know, two kids and they're healthy. My husband and I have good jobs. We own a house in this wonderful city. Like, what would I need faith for? My life is working pretty well. And that's kind of the person that I sort of have in mind. Like a person who may not think that faith has any relevance for them. Like either it's the person who doesn't even think that they could be capable of faith or doesn't even know why faith, the invitation into the Christian faith would even make sense for them. And so that's what I'm drawing out. I think as I go through the book of Deuteronomy and John, I told you um, this whole theme of life, I am seized by the image of Moses kind of preaching constantly to the Israelites, you know, holding out his arms to them and saying, please take up this invitation to live, to have the blessing, to not have the curse, follow God. You're made to belong to him. And then John, you know, we see Jesus just in the gospel of John, the exact same thing, you know, and John gets to the end of his gospel and he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and so that by believing you may have life in his name. As growing up at evangelical, of course, and, and Southern Baptist, truthfully, too, you know, I always sort of assume, well, that was like, that was heaven. That was the life after this life, instead of really grasping on to a more biblical vision of life, eternal life beginning now. And so, those are some of the things that I have in mind. I know it's a little bit of a crazy project, but I will say that in writing this book, I was introduced to a woman at her church, again, who showed up in her pajamas one Sunday morning because of a life crisis and because the, she Googled a church and the first one she found closest to her house was Grace Toronto Church and the friend who had just died was named Grace. And so she said, well, surely, I should go here. And she decided this at 10.10 and the service started at 10.30. So she had her husband drive her and she showed up in her pajamas and she cried through the entire service. Not a Christian, no reference point apart from growing up in Spain. And then started on the journey of finding and following Christ. And that included, she wanted to just start reading the Bible. And I said, well, I am working on the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Would you like to read it with me? <laughs> and she and two other women from my church, we just started reading Deuteronomy together as I was working through the book. And I mean, within months, she was a Christian. It was pretty crazy. It was a work of disruption, too, for sure, because she's at like Deuteronomy chapter four and realizing, like, who is this God of the Bible? It's funny because, you know, you hear a lot of folks say, you know, if you want to get familiarized with Christianity, the book of John's a great place to start. You don't often hear people say, check out the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> um, how have you found Deuteronomy to be helpful for people asking the kind of questions you're trying to address? 
Martin Luther talks about the Old Testament law producing an anguished conscience, and that is absolutely what happens with Deuteronomy, is that you just see, you know, Moses kind of holding out this invitation of life, but it's life based on an obedient faith in God. You know, it's not life on your own terms. It's life that is in submission to um, Yahweh. That is so important. I feel like actually... When you think about a secular mindset, and you and I have both worked with Charles Taylor and his work, and you think about this kind of autonomous stance of the secular individual, the highest law that I have is my own self, my own desires, my own kind of freedoms and caprice and whim and and thought of what is right in the world. And Deuteronomy actually like automatically sort of calls you out of that. Before you ever meet Jesus, you actually, it's just the first phrase in Deuteronomy. These are the words. And so, the day one in A Habit Called Faith is just really setting forth that idea of like, this is what the faith life is. It's a life of submission to the words of God, and then you get to John, and it's the Word of God. But I think that sometimes we wonder why our evangelistic efforts sometimes produce the kinds of seeds that Jesus described being scattered that are really shallowly rooted, that get choked by thorns, that are immediately sort of picked up by the birds. And I think it's a lot of times because we sort of pitch the gospel as all benefit and no burden, you know, sometimes. Mm. We don't really want to talk about the cost of following Jesus. We don't, we're nervous about that. And we're nervous to get people in places of the Bible that might affront people, you know, might Mm -hmm. challenge some of their expectations. And I'm just of the mentality, like, I'd rather have people go there from the very beginning. I'd rather have people sort of grapple early on with the cost of following Jesus, the cost of surrendering your freedom and your autonomy, your kind of right you think you have to self-expression. I think that's what Jesus did. You know, I mm-hmm. think we see that all through the Gospels, that you know, the crowds followed Him, the crowds were ready to make Him king, and He just did everything to sort of subvert all of their expectations, all of their messianic hopes. Like, and it, weirdly, right, the real Messiah is subverting their malformed messianic hopes. He's turning mm-hmm. them away. And Isn't it interesting that we sort of take up a strategy sometimes in the church that looks nothing like Jesus's? A few years ago, at the Festival of Faith in Writing, I saw Jen on a panel discussion about why men aren't reading women writers. I thought it was an interesting topic, something I'd never really considered before. So I asked her how she thinks about the place of women writers and evangelicalism. Such a such a big question. You do see the research bearing out that, you know, women read widely, you know, men and women, and it seems that men gravitate more toward men. That probably depends a little bit on genre. And one of the things that we had talked about, and I know Tish was a guest for you recently um, on Cultivated, but, you know, one of the things that she had talked about was credentialing, you know, being a really kind of important thing. And she said, I really want, I'd like to see more women go to seminary, you know, and if you're going to write on theological topics, then get a degree. And I've thought about that a lot. And I've essentially just sort of said, you know what, I want to inhabit the role of writer. And I think that 
there are challenges to that because there are writers who are academics and you, you know, you kind of know what that means. You have writers who are theologians or, you know, vocational pastors and you sort of know what that means. But when you're just a writer, what, what does that mean? And when you're a woman who wants to make sense of theology and, and lived expressions of faith, like it does get challenging. And I think it gets challenging because people, A, sort of wonder, well, what business do you have? sort of writing on these things. And I think B, and this is probably a, a little bit more of one reason why I write as I write, even though I know that sometimes it can be fraught, I think to bring story into sort of a theological I would definitely say I'm trying to grapple th theologically to make that sort of autobiographically inflected, I think mm -hmm. can be perilous in some people's estimation, because I think there's this idea that women write more emotionally, that women are, um, it is something that is too kind of low level. And I really regret this. I think that there are expressions of our faith that are abstract, and that is actually valorized. That is what sort of looks like a faithful expression of theology, for example, is that when it's most abstract, most conceptual, kind of most high level, then wow, that's really smart. Not everything in the Bible reads like the Pauline epistles. And mm -hmm. I'd love to see more Christian writers writing like the book of Genesis. Well, that actually makes more sense because it is prose narrative and we don't have apostolic teaching necessarily to offer to the church. So, I think as a woman, I feel that tension, that there is a sense in which some people might sort of turn their nose up a little bit at the lived expressions of faith and the autobiographically inflected expressions of faith in my book. But I continue to say that we need more stories in the church. We need to kind of feed our imagination for faithful living. And so long as we only have abstraction, we can't really can't get there. I've been thankful that I've had a lot of support, you know, from people in the publishing industry. I also think that sometimes there are people who take for granted the ease with which they sort of get the word out about their work because they have institutional affiliation. And that's something mm -hmm. that I, that I don't have. And I don't think I'll ever have. I'm pursuing the writer's route. I'm actually starting my MFA next month. And I've decided that I'm going, I'm landing here. I'm going to inhabit this. I'm trying to look to nourish my imagination for what women who have written about their lives and about their lived experience of faith throughout the centuries, what does that look like? And what does that inform about my own understanding of this work? Mm. And I think it's so important. I mean, my writing gets framed this way often as well when writers are working to make concepts accessible and practical and, and attach them to their stories and, and all of that. The label that often gets slapped on is, you know, you're a translator of other people's material. Mm. And, you know, there's a sense in which I think there's some truth to that. And part of the reason why I'm thinking about this is there's a lot of common threads between your book on paradox and my book on wonder. Absolutely. And I'm sure that that label got applied a lot to my book and I'm, I'm guessing it probably got applied a lot to yours as well, but no creative work ever happens in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Everybody's always working with other people's raw materials. Um, and 
part of what I think happens is when somebody really in, invests in the craft of writing, and I would say this is true of your work, it comes off being readable and comprehensible, mm. and it looks easy. <laughs> but that's but that's that's the magic trick, right? Like you made it look you made it look easy. You made comprehending it easy. Where others who I, I don't want to take anything away from their work or from their gifts, and I'm certainly not going to name names, but who write at a very high level and write with a great deal of complexity, who with a little more craft would be a lot more comprehensible. I know exactly what you're saying, and I think as a writer, I continue to feel challenged. I feel like the spiritual, I guess the challenge from the Holy Spirit to make my work more and more comprehensible, because I think that's actually not less beautiful necessarily, but maybe less ornamental. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that I've been kind of driven by this vision of beauty, and I don't think that's a wrong thing. And I mean, I want to continue to try to write things that are beautiful, but if they're only beautiful and not comprehensible, then I'm not sure how helpful they are. And there's a comprehensibility that's literary, that's suggestive, that's not always kind of the, here you go, here are your three steps, you know, to move into this, you know, truth that I've just laid out for you. There are different kinds of comprehensibility, but I think that a writer at our core, we would want our readers to be able to sort of, you know, to make sense of what we've just offered to them. Again, I think that creative work can invite readers into the work of making sense. I don't think actually Mm -hmm. all of the work belongs to us, but it's not that none of it belongs to us either. First he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know. All right, thanks for listening. If you have feedback for us, you can email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Please do subscribe to our show. And if you can, leave us a rating and review in iTunes. Cultivated is produced by me. It's edited by Mark Owens. Our music is by Dan Phelps. And our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.